right, good morning. Uh, real quick, just announcement. If you weren't here last week, uh, we celebrate uh, Logan and Jessica Nutt had their, their baby. And I wanted to let you know, though, that uh, the, uh, their baby's still in the NICU unit. I uh, was born several weeks early and about a little over three pounds. And so definitely, this is an, as we came together this morning earlier and talked about uh, how we need to love one another as, as family, and that's what the church is, this is an opportunity for us to definitely uh, spread that love to them and make sure that they, they feel their church family's love. And so I would encourage you, uh, reach out to them if you need their contact information. Um, I, I can get it to you. Uh, we, can, we can definitely share that information with you. I'm sure that they would even love some visits to the, to the hospital by some of you too. And so I would encourage you to, to join me in, in caring for that family. You can imagine what it would be like to have your child. Baby's healthy uh, and growing. They're just waiting for the baby to get healthy enough to be able to feed on its own on a regular basis. And so um, also we've got another baby coming any minute, literally any minute now. And so be in prayer for the slave. <laughs> They're saying, please, now. Um, so be in prayer for the Slaters. They, um, they probably will not be here next week. And so we will definitely share our love with them as they transition and pray that the baby and mom are healthy through this transition. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke together. We're going to be taking a look at the Transfiguration this morning. It's verses 28 through 36. If you've got a, one of our Bibles, it's page 960. Again, Luke chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context about what's going on here. Ever since Peter declared that Jesus is the Christ of God, Jesus has been saying some pretty crazy things if you think about it. He's saying things like, look, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. I mean, normal people don't talk like that. He's just predicted his own suffering, his own rejection, his own death, and his own resurrection. And then he turns to his disciples right after that, and he says to them, look, if you're going to come after me, you need to follow me down that same path. You need to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily. In other words, he's calling everybody that's going to call themselves Christians to embrace rejection and suffering and possibly even death. And he, he clarifies himself even. He, he says, look, if you chase after anything else in this world, if you, if you try to save your life on your own, in the end you will end up losing your life. And if, if I'm an embarrassment to you now, he says, look, you're going to be an embarrassment to me when I return in my glory. So Jesus is not playing here. He doesn't want simply admirers. He wants fully devoted followers. And those first believers, that, that, that first century church was amazing. It's remarkable. That's what he got. He got fully committed disciples. We talked about it last week. It's, it's miraculous that the church made it through the first hundred years. The persecution was intense. Like Jesus, they were, if you were a follower of Jesus, you risked being nailed to a cross yourself. Not only that, they would tie Christians to stakes and light them on fire to light up the night 
Emperor Nero would, would, would put stakes of Christians burning in his gardens and then invite people to have parties in the evenings. They were stoned. The Christians were wrapped in wild animal skins and then fed to dogs. They, were, they would tie nooses around their necks and they would drag them behind horses for miles until their bones would show. They were starved to death. They were boiled. Their houses were burned. They were thrown into dungeons to rot. And I could go on, but I think you get the point. And here's what's miraculous. The church didn't just endure that. It grew and it became stronger because of that. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is, how is that possible? How was that possible? And how can we have that same kind of mentality? They were unstoppable force. And so today, if real persecution came to your life, would you be ready to follow Christ, to pick up your cross, to abandon everything, no matter what the cost? Today's passage, what we're going to see in the transfiguration, is really a glimpse of something that encouraged those disciples to persevere. And I pray that it would encourage us today. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you knowing that what you are calling us to is impossible apart from a miracle from your spirit to invade our hearts and change us from the inside out, to be willing to embrace suffering like you call us to embrace it, to embrace being rejected by our friends and our families and our co-workers for the sake of the gospel, that you would put in us your spirit and embolden us. I pray that we would get a glimpse of your glory here. And that would spur us on to proclaim the gospel boldly, to endure suffering for your sake. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so once again, the context is huge in this case. To understand the transfiguration, you've got to understand the context. Again, Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus predicts his own suffering, his death, his resurrection. Then he turns to his disciples. He says, look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you need to pick up your cross daily. And then in verse 27, I want you to look back in verse 27, because he says something here that looks very strange at first. He says, to them, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? Now, he can't mean that some of the disciples are never going to die. Okay? He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that, look, that, that I'm going to return in all my glory before some of you die. He can't mean that. He means simply that some of them are going to see the kingdom of God before they they die. But what does he mean? Scholars debate about this. They debate whether Jesus meant what he means by the kingdom of God. And Jesus is not specific here, but there are definitely some places in the New Testament where the kingdom of God seems to break through, that there, there's a, a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. Prime examples would be his resurrection. Okay, people don't just normally come back to life. Another prime example would be his ascension into the heavens. But I think it's significant 
that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place the story of the transfiguration immediately after Jesus makes the statement. I believe the transfiguration is one of those examples where the kingdom of God breaks through. There's very few times in those three gospels that things happen in chronological order and and they match up like that. So I think there's something significant. There's a connection between what just happened and the transfiguration. And so let's walk through this passage. Verse 28. So now about eight days after these things, these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to, was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's walk through this passage together. Verse 28 gives us the setting. Luke points out that it's been eight days since Jesus had spoken to the disciples about his prediction of his own death and resurrection, about them following him and picking up their own crosses, and about that some of them would see the kingdom before they died. So it's been eight days since that's happened. Now, it's not normal for Luke to be that specific about about what's happening next. That's not normal for Luke to do that. So there's definitely a tie between the transfiguration and what just happened happened prior to that. Now, if you study this in depth, you're going to notice that Matthew and Mark say six days rather than eight days, but don't get hung up on that. They're both just saying that it's about a week. It's two different ways to say it's approximately about a week later that this happened. It's not that the Bible is contradicting itself there. And so Jesus takes his core team, his, uh, it's, uh, the Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain to pray, and if you've been with us for a while, you know that anytime Jesus goes up onto a mountain to pray, something significant is about to happen. So pay attention. Verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Now Matthew and Mark both mentioned that he was transfigured. It's, It's the Greek word metamorpho which we get our word metamorphosis. There there was a complete change. His face completely looked different. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. Here we see that his his clothing even became dazzling white. The word literally means white like lightning, radiant, gleaming. It's a spectacular vision that he's describing here. And then behold, 
two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Okay, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah being there with Jesus? Well, first of all, it proves that Jesus is not Elijah. Some people thought that, right? We, we learned that a couple weeks ago. But more importantly, this connects Jesus with all of the history of the Jews. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents all the prophets. So we've got the law and the prophets represented here on the mountain. Their discussion was significant also. They, they spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. Now, that Greek word for departure is exodus. So it's kind of interesting there that Jesus is talking to Moses about his own exodus. And of course, he's referring to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, which was about to be accomplished or fulfilled. And so I want you to understand that what's going on here is not this holy huddle where they're coming up with a game plan. The cross was the plan from the very, very beginning. And after his resurrection, he, many of you know the story. He's on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to two of his disciples about all the things that had happened to Jesus, and they didn't quite understand. And so he says this to him. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so evidently it was important that Jesus explained to his disciples. It was important to Jesus that his disciples understood the connection between him and the Old Testament. In fact, this has gotten my attention so much that we're actually, in a few weeks, we're going to take a break from Luke to to have a a mini-sermon series on all the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And so that'll lead us up until Christmas. And my hope and my prayer is that through studying Jesus in the Old Testament, the capacity of our hearts to trust his faithfulness to us will be expanded. Now, I want you to imagine being Peter or or James or John on the mountain in this experience. I mean, it would blow you away. I mean, the the text says they they were heavy in sleep. Okay, so evidently following Jesus was tiresome. Like, just give me, a, give me a rock as a pillow and a flat piece of dirt. I can fall asleep anywhere. So you see this several times with the disciples. And so they're groggy. They wake up. They see Jesus and Moses and Elijah and all of his glory. And so Peter says the strangest things. Why, Jesus, can, I, can we build some tents so that you guys can stay here? Why would Peter suggest building tents in this moment? Now, some scholars think that Peter saw Jesus talking to Moses about the Exodus and remembered that the Old Testament prophets, they predicted that with the Messiah there would be a second Exodus. And so, for maybe it was for Peter natural for him to suggest erecting these tents or, or booths or tabernacles because that's exactly what the Israelites lived in after the Exodus. And so, this was kind of a celebration. And that may be the case That might be a possibility, but I think Peter simply wants that mountaintop experience to last longer. That's what he's wanting. It's natural for us to do that. I mean, have you ever had that experience where where God just sweeps you off your feet, where all the cares of the world just kind of disappear for, for a moment or even a season, and there's no worries in your life anymore? You're just so overwhelmed with a feeling of God's 
presence. All your doubts about God disappear in that moment. And it's natural for us to say, okay, I don't want that feeling to go. But I think the lesson here is that those mountaintop experiences, while they they are definitely a gift from God, they're not meant to last this side of eternity. And so our desire should not be like Peter's here on the mountain to prolong that mountaintop experience. Instead, we should be willing to go back down into the valley where, where real ministry happens, where, where we're called to call others to, to, to follow God, to meet with God. Not on the mountaintop, though. We don't call them to meet God on the mountaintop. We call them to Christ through faith and faith alone. Verse 34, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. So he kind of gets interrupted in his thought here. And they were afraid as they were entering into that cloud. God's glory often manifests itself in a cloud. If you think back through the Old Testament, God guided the Israelites through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day. At the top of Mount Sinai, God came to Moses in a cloud and spoke to him there. Uh, The cloud of God's presence filled the tabernacle, filled the temple. Now, on a side note, in all of those experiences, there's no mention of glitter or gold in the clouds, okay? And so if you followed what's happening on in Bethel or some of these charismatic churches, and also note here that when the cloud comes, they're not erupting in praise and worship and joy. What's happening? They're shrinking and they're afraid because if you're a sinner and you find yourself in the presence of a holy God, that's a scary thing. So they're frightened here. But it served to catch their attention, didn't it? And the voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Which I think is pretty significant if you think about back what he just commanded them to do. Pick up your cross. Follow me. So now, not only has Peter declared that Jesus is the Christ of God, now the Father in dramatic fashion, has confirmed that. I think in this moment, Jesus could have told Peter to do anything. And Peter would have been like, yes, okay. I mean, Peter, bark like a dog. Yes. He would do anything in this moment. And of course, Jesus doesn't do this. But let's not miss the importance, the significance of this moment. Again, Jesus just a week ago has told his disciples that, look, I'm going to suffer and be rejected I'm going to die on a cross. And then he turns to them and says, look, and I want you to do the same thing. He predicts that his disciples are going to, you're going to have to, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to embrace significant persecution, significant suffering. You're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross. Let's not water that down. It's an incredible command. And so what is it that God's going to give them to be able to experience and, and endure That kind of calling. This is it. God gave them a glimpse of the glory to come if they finish the race. Now, I want to make this clear. It wasn't just the love of Christ that compelled them to be obedient to Jesus. That's part of it, no doubt. But it was also this future hope of glory. This this amazing vision that they had of being with God for all eternity, to bestow his beauty. I remember when 
I was in college. Kim and I had been dating for some time, and we were at that point in our life where we knew we were going to get married, and but we hadn't yet gotten engaged, and we actually spent a summer apart where she went to Colorado with Campus Crusade for Christ on a mission trip, and I went up to Michigan to be a, a camp counselor. And I had a week off, and then during that week, instead of going back to my family, I, I actually got on a plane at 20 years old, navigated, and it was, it's a miracle that I ever made it there, but I traveled to Colorado, and this is before cell phones, and so uh, I, I can remember getting to Colorado, and it's dark, and I had to catch another bus to be able to get to, I think it was Colorado Springs where she was staying, and I got there in the middle of the night, it felt like 2 o'clock in the morning to me because of the, the time change, and so I crashed. I remember waking up that next morning. And remember, I, I grew up in northern Ohio. The biggest hill in northern Ohio is like a molehill, okay? It's flat everywhere. So I woke up that next morning, and I, and I walked out of the, the building that, we, that I was staying in, and, and I walked around the corner, and I looked up, and boom, right in front of me were the Rocky Mountains. And I was blown, and I just stopped. And people are like walking by me, probably thinking I'm nuts. But I just stopped and I just gazed and I stared at the beauty and the grandeur of the, 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 the snow-topped mountains that were right there in front of me. I mean, just immense. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountain, there's nothing that compares to it. It's just amazing. And 20 years later, Cam and I, this is like four years ago, Cam and I decided to take our, our kids on a, on a vacation to the Rocky Mountains to go back to the same place. And I remember, so we packed up, at that time we had four kids, uh, ages 6 to 12. And we, so we packed all of them up, uh, all of our camping gear, had a trailer. It's about a 20, it's 1,200 miles, like 20 hours in the car if you've got a trailer that you're dragging. And you're going through Kansas, okay? So you, you guys know, if you're from St. Louis, you know what it's like. <laughs> you feel like you're on a treadmill, and they're like, man, didn't I just see that same hay bale like 100 miles ago? You feel like you're just going in a circle. You wonder if you're ever making any kind of progress. But I remember what got me through that drive was this vision of the glory of those mountains, and I couldn't wait. In fact, I, I just kept looking way off in the distance, just waiting for them to kind of pop up. And I can remember seeing them for the first time as we're driving towards them. And I think I scared the whole car because I was like, ah, there they are! Because you could see them way off in the distance. Peter, James, and John at the Transfiguration, they got a glimpse of the prize that waited for them at the end of the race. If you want to be fully obedient to the high calling of Christ to deny yourself, to pick up your cross daily and follow him, you've got to have a vision of a hope of that glory in front of you. You've got to gaze at it as much as possible. Paul said it this way. He said that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so what motivated him to do that, to have that same mentality, that I'm willing to, to suffer right along Christ, no matter what it costs me. He says, not that I've already obtained it, not, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, listen to this, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's huge. And so he recognized the love of Christ for him. So that was part of it. But he goes on, he says, 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing that I do, one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind me, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You got to see the prize. You got to envision the glory of God. I mean, if you look at heaven and, and, and God's not there, I mean, are you really, like, what, what's your hope? The question, like, do you really understand the gospel? If you're not looking forward to the glory of God and being in his presence for all of eternity, what are you chasing after then? That's a question we all should ask ourselves. What are you chasing after? I mean, all of us are designed to chase after glory. I mean, we we're drawn to glory. We love looking at beautiful things. We're naturally, we're, we're by nature glory chasers, wired for it. Paul Tripp says that we're glory junkies. I like that. We're seeking, we're constantly seeking something that's bigger than us, something that's beyond us, something that's worthy of our full devotion, our, our worship. Augustine prayed this way. He says, Thou has made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Pascal said, there's a God-shaped hole inside of all of us. So your desire for glory will only be satisfied in the glory of Christ. But what does Satan want to do? Satan's objective is to blind you from being able to see the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. The God of this world, talking about Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan's goal is to prevent humans from experiencing the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Paul's talking about those who don't believe in the gospel. He says this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Satan's ploy from the very beginning was to convince us to chase after our own glory rather than the glory of God. And so Adam and Eve, they bought into that, and what happened? They did not receive glory. They received the exact opposite of glory. They received shame. And so salvation is a reversal of that. When Jesus, when you trust Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes into your, your heart, and you're born again, what does Jesus do? He takes away your shame, takes it to the cross. He says, it's mine. I'll be made ridiculous for you. He forgives your sins and he opens up your eyes to see the glory of God and enjoy it. Salvation is a reversal of what happened to Adam and Eve. And so you don't have to wait. If you're, if you're a believer, if you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, the Spirit opens your eyes. You don't have to wait till Christ returns to see the glory of Christ. You can get glimpses of it now. And they're all over the place. God's Word Specifically, I mean, if Satan's, if the lies of Satan serve to blind you from the glory of God, the truth of God's word opens your eyes to see the glory. It's where we learn about the, the beauty of his character. 
and his attributes, his faithfulness, his power, his holiness. And so you, so you see glimpses of God in, in his word. I mean, what a treasure we have here to have God's very word. Let's not neglect it. Look for God's glory. When I, when I open up the words, one of, one of the first things I pray before I read God's word is, God, show me your glory in here. Don't show me what I want to see. Show me your glory that it might sustain me. Secondly, we see glory, glimpses of God's glory in all of creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, just walk outside. Don't take it for granted. Be amazed at the beauty. I mean, what, what, the pictures I've seen of the, like the hurricane coming in even, and the power, and the majesty of, of God's glory, even in that, you see it all over the place in creation. You get glimpses of God's glory, especially here in your church, not, not in a building, but in the redeemed people of God. That's what church is. It's not a building. It's not a meeting. It's who we are. It's our family. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It's the dwelling place of the, the Spirit. I mean, when we come together and we gather for worship, we get an opportunity to, to get a glimpse of Revelation chapter 7 where all believers from all times will gather together among the myriads and myriads of angels around the throne to worship and praise the Lamb of God. We get a glimpse of that. Let's not neglect that. Let's enjoy that. When, when someone gets baptized here, I mean, that's, a, that's something we enjoy. We celebrate that as a church family because that's an opportunity for us to praise that somebody's been brought from death to life. That's a miracle. That's, a, that's God's glory right there. We're seeing a miracle happen. And we get to celebrate that together as a family. That's a wonderful thing. So you see glimpses of God's glory in the, in the church. You see glimpses of God's glory also in your suffering. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you suffer for the sake of Jesus, when you're insulted because of your relationship with Christ, when you're persecuted, God bestows on you. His glory rests upon you in a special way. In your time of need, He will give you everything you need for your soul to be satisfied by His glory. And so you need not fear being persecuted. Especially if you've studied missionaries that have given everything or martyrs, you know that those stories, they're so encouraging because in the midst of those stories, over and over, you see this pattern of it, 